those who are in the medical industry. We don't think about though. Morticians, first of all, nearly 700,000 folks have died uh, from COVID. Well, that means that they, they are going through uh, funeral homes. And the reality is funeral homes, morticians are dealing with this in a significant way. Last year, we talked about this on the show when we had uh, black funeral homeowners. They were talking about uh, what kind of PPP uh, they were going to get, the kind of the equipment. Well, the reality is many are not fully protecting themselves as a result as a result of this. Since the start of the pandemic, about 130 black morticians have passed away. Funeral directors implement safety policies to protect themselves and their staff from the virus, but just like doctors and nurses, some have become a casualty of the virus. Joining us now is the president of the National Funeral Directors and Morticians Association, uh, Harry P. Close II. Uh, Harry, glad to have you here. Um, that, that, very, that issue right there, um, how has this been happening? Is, has it been the result of coming in contact with folks who have died of COVID, or has it been the fact that funerals have become COVID uh, super spreaders? Well, it's, it's a combination of, of, of well, three different things. One, um, I, can we get this one? One, COVID is not on the death certificates at all. And so uh, in order for our, our members to really uh, function, we have to uh, make sure that we treat everyone like they have COVID. Uh, second of all, um, yes, the, the um, Funerals are a spreader, but at the, at the same time, um, you don't know who has COVID. Most people don't go to the hospital. Um, it's an airborne virus. It's on your clothes. It's under under your shoes. Someone might have a, a, a mask, and they'll and if they cough, if it's caught in the mask, great. But if not, it's spread out, and then it, the droplets fall on the on the on the ground, and we're walking in it. Um, our colleagues were just so inundated with uh, this virus. Now, since the Delta virus, we lost four uh, film directors in the last week with the Delta uh, virus or, or the Delta variants of, of this COVID-19. So it is really a um, major issue that most people don't realize. That's just the film directors, 130. We're not talking about the staffs. And so, what are your members? Uh, what are your members asking for? Are they asking for uh, assistance? Are they, I mean, first of all, uh, do your funeral homes have the right protections and things along those lines? Uh, I, I think that we all, we have, it. and I, I want to thank you for the last last year around May we were on, and uh, there was a shortage, and because of this segment, we were able to really get inundated with numerous uh, suppliers. So, I, I, the issue now is not the PPEs. Um, the issue is that we have people in this country not using masks, not taking the vaccine, and unfortunately, we're in a profession that we can't um, um, know what's, what that family member has. If someone else has COVID, they're dying of it. and Or if it's not an intestine, that means that the family's exposed to it, and they're in the funeral home when the funeral director is um, serving that family at a time of need. We're the last stage of the health system. Um, and unfortunately, what we're trying to really emphasize across the country is for, uh, particularly in our community, take that vaccine. Um, yeah, there might be a less than 0.001 that might get affected with the Delta variants from taking the vaccine. 
but there's still still many people, even in my own industry, just like the nurses and doctors, that some of them have not taken the vaccine, and we have a, a national effort to make sure our members uh, are making sure that they take the vaccine. Uh, last week, I'm in Maryland. Our governor had made it clear that, that private uh, companies and corporations can mandate it to their employees. And yesterday, uh, President Biden made it very clear that... Uh, um it's good to see you. a private company that you can mandate it. You know, uh, uh, it's common sense to me. Everyone in this country has had, and even your listeners has had someone that died of this, uh, uh, I'll say, plague, uh, COVID-19. And then you have people who are in the same family that saw the suffering not taking the vaccine. It is free. It's available. We are now working with um, the White House to try to have an initiative to have funeral homes be a place of receiving the vaccine. It's kind of it's like a catch-22. Some will say, oh, you have a massive group, um, and that's going to be a spreader. Well, let it be in another room. You can take the vaccine. Um, we're trying to come up. If it's killing the funeral directors, this thing is real. Now, uh, we have been working with the White House in the last um, four or five months. We are uh, on the... Uh, advisory committee for the FEMA for reimbursement, which we're glad is working well. But when we really think about why should we be reimbursed for a funeral when we can be able to stop um, people from dying of this major uh, disease and this virus. And so we're now looking at another point, letting people know that most people didn't know that many funeral directors have died, particularly in the African-American community. And if you go to your vital records, get them uh, 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 American Freedom Act or through Social Security, you will find how many have died that that category on that death certificate says occupation, funeral director, mortician, and bomber, which means we are more exposed um, than our colleagues on the front end. But what I'm saying and asking your listeners, audience, we know we have family members. I had one of my children. It took me months to get convinced him, uh, you need to take the vaccine. And, you know, um, this thing is so wait, 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 wait. You, here you are yep. dealing with this, and it's not like you want to sit here uh, and have to bury a child early, and you're going through this, and you had to convince even one of your own children? Own child. Yes. Yes. Wow. And uh, I, I can't use the vernacular I really use, but I, you know, <laughs> you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm doing something that I have to do, and you're seeing the results of what I'm doing, and you still question, you know, and, 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 it's, and I had to look at her, and, and, and I had another son that was ill, that I, I was just, it, it hits home. And, and I'll just say, like I say at, at my church, I can't imagine, I can't even wrap my head around um, how people are seeing what's happening in the world. And there's an opportunity to prevent it. And we're saying as funeral directors, we don't want this type of business. We just have to do it because we've been called to do the end health system. But we're saying if we can prevent it and there's an opportunity for prevention, why not do it? It just seems common sense to me. And um, 
you know, we heard all the stories across the country when people who were advocate of not taking it, and once they get it, they're saying they wish they could have. This, that should be a wake-up call, but uh, apparently um, it is not, and that's why I'm glad APY came out today, you know, letting them know this is killing the funeral directors and their staff. So I don't know how real it can be when ministers and funeral directors are dying at a level, particularly in our community. And, and I'll say to my uh, majority community colleagues, it's affecting them. They just are not as, um, as a larger number. But I know of numerous funerals I've gone to um, for my colleagues across the industry. Mm. Mm. That is, uh, that is uh, absolutely terrible. Uh, Eric Close, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And, uh, again, one of the reasons why uh, this show matters, uh, I'm glad to hear after uh, you were on last year. Uh, the people got the message uh, and, and came to the assistance uh, of, uh, of, of these black uh, funeral homes. Thank you. And it's always a pleasure to be around another fraternity man. All right. All right. Yeah. Thank so, you so much. I know. I know. Michael Imhotep is a little hurt by that, but he'll get over it. He'll get over it. <laughs> well, I, I, 06, <laughs> brother, 06. It's okay, my friend. We're all in this, the divine nine. Yeah, or, or, well, I, I let Michael know it's Alpha and Divine Eight. So. <laughs> well, there's only, there's only, I always tell them in church, there's only uh, two uh, the divine uh, organizations in the Bible, Alpha and Omega. But um, I don't re- I'm not ready for Omega chapter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, precisely. Uh, none, yeah, none of us are ready for Omega chapter. We that's, appreciate- that's why we're here today. Thank you so yes, much sir. for this nation. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. September 11th, 2001. We were all reminded that unity is possible in America. We were reminded also that unity is imperative in America. It is essential to our shared prosperity, to our national security, and to our standing in the world. President Biden laid a wreath at the Flight 93 Memorial later in the day and then stopped at a local firehouse where he praised the remarks by former President Bush. For those kids that just had a picture taken, the come had Trump hats uh, last year. Um, I think for them it's going to be, are we going to, in the next four, five, six, ten years, demonstrate that democracy can work or not? From Pennsylvania, the president headed to the Pentagon for his third ceremony. In New York City, after the memorial at Ground Zero concluded, former President Donald Trump made a surprise visit to a police station and a firehouse near his home in Trump Tower. He did not attend the morning ceremony. At the Pentagon this morning, a flag unfurled across the west side of the building where terrorists crashed American Airlines Flight 77, killing 125 people inside the Pentagon and 59 others on board the plane. Colonel Canfield D. Boone, United States Army. The Secretary of Defense, himself a veteran of the war in Afghanistan that followed the 9-11 Al-Qaeda attacks, offered another reminder that the country must never forget. As the years march on, we must ensure that all our fellow Americans know and understand what happened here on 9-11. And in Manhattan. And in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Tonight, New York City will again see the tribute in life, two beams of light 
marking the memory of the Twin Towers, all who perished, and the thousands who raced to the scene. For more on today's commemoration and the latest national and international news, visit pbs.org slash newsout. On the morning of 9-11, photojournalist Jennifer Brown, who was working for the Star-Ledger newspaper, now a part of New Jersey Advanced Media, raced to the ferry terminal in her hometown of Jersey City after hearing reports that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. From her vantage point across the river from Manhattan, she photographed the towers before they fell, as they fell, and after. She covered the ferries evacuating people from New York City across the river to New Jersey. Since 2001, she's documented the stories of survivors and families of those who died for the Remembrance Project. We met in Jersey City, where she's returned to the same spot every year to take photographs. So what brought you to this spot on that day? I turned the TV on and saw that the first tower had been hit. And uh, I called the desk and told them I was going to head down because, you know, the Twin Towers were, you know, they're part of the skyline for us. That area of the city is kind of like an extension of our neighborhood. So I hopped in the car um, drove around the corner, and from the time I had left my house till I got where I could visibly see the towers, the second plane had hit. I pulled over, I made some photographs from up on the hill, and, you know, still it, at this moment, I'm just thinking about getting as close as I can safely and making photographs. So I drove down, and it was very calm down here. There weren't a lot of people. You know, one of the first photographs I took were of the office workers flooding out of these buildings and just seeing the looks on their faces the concern the the trauma of watching it unfold uh, in real time one photograph that stands out in my mind is there was a gentleman you know he had his young child in a stroller and he was just standing watching and that was very profound to me my son at the time was three and i remember thinking this is gonna change everything, especially for the next generation of people, including that child and, and my son. You were even here and were taking photos when one of the towers fell. Yes, thinking as someone who works for a newspaper, I thought, what's Jersey City's role gonna be in the broad scheme of things? And then I started to see the ferries and the boats coming. And I thought, we're a direct line for people to evacuate. Uh, so I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for a ferry to come, and just as that ferry docked, I don't know, I just, I knew something was going to happen, and you could hear it. it. You could hear the rumble of the tower collapsing you know, as it pancaked down on itself. Each level, you could, you could hear it rumble. It was like a shh, and then kind of a pounding sound. And then at that moment, uh, people started to get off the ferry. And, uh, and so I had a wide-angle lens, and I was photographing them. And you could see that there was only one tower in the background of those photos. And there was that plume of smoke from the first tower coming down. And it just enveloped all of lower Manhattan. You could not see any landmass. It came out into the water. And that was probably the most frightening thing, was I just didn't imagine anyone could survive that cloud of smoke. 
When you started the morning, there were two towers here. Yes. They were smoking. And by the time you finished your assignment, the entire skyline of New York had changed. It had changed, yeah. It seemed to go by incredibly fast, but also, you know, when those towers came down, it was almost like in slow motion. You know, for me, the camera has always kind of been a separation between me and what's happening. But I think this really made me realize what it feels like to be a victim of, a, of something like this, because it was also happening to me. I mean, I was there documenting it, but it was happening to me, to my country, to my city, to my friends, to my colleagues. And so you think about it in a different way. Metropolitan Detroit has long been home to the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the U.S. And while the community had already experienced prejudice, negative stereotypes, and government surveillance, the attacks of 9-11 made things worse. Justice Department statistics point out that acts of violence and hate crimes against Muslims and Arab Americans increased. Two decades later, the community there is showing how the events of 9-11 were a catalyst to combat stereotypes by organizing and building a stronger cultural identity. NewsHour Weekend's Christopher Booker has the story. The spices from Syria, the sweets from Lebanon, and the nuts from Turkey can transport anyone walking through the doors of Hashem's roastery and market. Sights and smells commonly found in markets of Istanbul, Doha, or Tehran, all coming from a shop in Dearborn, Michigan. This is one of three locations in the Detroit suburbs. The original, started in 1959, is in Lebanon. And while the story of this family-owned market has similar beginnings to other small businesses, in the last 20 years, it's taken on a greater meeting for COO Adam Hashem. I'm sure my brothers probably feel the same way. We just thought this was a business. When 9-11 happened, you know, something grew inside of me that said, hey, we have something beautiful here, and we can do a lot of beautiful things with this. Hashem's parents immigrated to Michigan from Lebanon in 1977. Born in 1983, he was a freshman in college on 9-11. So before 9-11, I was just... Uh, you know, a normal student, you know, living a normal life. When 9-11 happened, it was immediate prejudice and immediate judgment. From stairs on the street to stops at the airport, Hashem's America has been different since 9-11. He says it's a country where he's regularly scrutinized, questioned, and suspected. But Hashem says something else has also happened. With every destruction comes a, right, a revitalization of something beautiful and new. And so that event brought us all closer together. Um, for fear of being deport, uh, deported, fear of, you know, being judged or attacked. My mom wears a scarf on her head. So, like, fear of her going to the grocery store and being mugged because she's identified as a Muslim. These things have unified us. For Hashim, this unity is coming through food. The market becoming a place where Dearborn's disparate yet growing Arab population can not only find staples from where they came, but new connections to where they are. We're not just showcasing food. We're using food to showcase cultures. And connecting those cultures is the most important thing for us. You know, we have Afghani pine nuts. You, you, I bet you will not find them in the country. It took me six months to fly them in here. And, like, they had to pay off politicians and military checkpoints. 
and they they didn't almost they almost didn't want to do the deal anymore. So you know we have Iranian professionals. You know there's there's a lot of stuff that you have in this store that makes it unique and provides an experience. Guess what that is? Red velvet. What? Red velvet. Yeah. I was thinking birthday cake. It's not just in the market. It's also through social media. Earlier this summer, Hashem teamed up with Abe Obed on his project, Halal Food Junkie, an Instagram account that reviews and promotes halal food. So you guys go to cities and basically kind of go and test out the food, the halal food, and kind of create a, a bit of a, a travel guide to halal eating in the U.S. And that's it. So we started in Dearborn, right? And, but because most of Dearborn is already our, our base, and already understands what we're doing and know us maybe on a personal level, we decided to start a store and go out to do it. And so because now we go out to do it, we're seeing different cultures and different people. And we're seeing different ethnicities, including white Americans, that come up to us and say, hey, what are you eating? The Halal Food Junkie Instagram account has over 34,000 followers, and each post gets tens of thousands of views. Do you think you would be in this place had the events of 20 years ago not happened? Um, probably not. I don't have to do this. It is my responsibility and my duty. Because we're all brothers and we're all one. We're building this network of people, traditional and non-traditional Arabs, that are helping unify again. So it all goes back to the same theme. And so because me and Halal Food Junkie are able to reach so many people and do these stores, um, we're going to reach a lot of people with this unifying ideal. And we're using good food to do it. This is, this is part of our journey. This is what we have to do. Lobo, let's go! <laughs> this guy just stopped it. As soon as the planes hit the World Trade Center, thousands of firefighters, police officers, and emergency medical workers rushed to Lower Manhattan. Many of them lost their lives trying to rescue people trapped inside the towers. Among the survivors were three New York police officers, Bill Urey, Mark DeMarco, and Detective Dan McNally. They were inside the World Trade Center complex when the towers came down. We partnered with Retro Report, a nonprofit news organization that uses history to inform the present to tell their story. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. At 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the World Trade Center North Tower Building 1. It was one of four planes hijacked by 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists that day. At first, it seemed a tragic accident, an airplane off course. As I'm watching this, trying to figure out, do I have to go to work? The second plane hit, and I saw it on TV. And that was it. All I seen was this huge fireball coming out of Tower 2, out of the South Tower. And for a second, I, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe just the building blew up. I ran downstairs, and I'm looking south, and both towers are on fire. And... Um, it was stunning. With the second catastrophic strike, it became clear that the country was under attack. 
New York City mounted its largest rescue effort in history, dispatching more than 2,000 firefighters, medical workers, and police officers to Lower Manhattan. It was a little hard getting through the streets because there was debris all over. So they'd come out of the building from the plane hitting it. you got to remember, the North Tower is fully engulfed. It, it, it's, it's, people are jumping out of the windows. I did not look. I was not going to look. I, I, I'm very protective of my psyche. I, I, I only need to see what I need to see. Uh, in situations like this, and uh, but you can you couldn't close your ears. Rescue workers rushed in to help the more than 16,000 people still inside, putting their own lives on the line. Officers Bill Biori and Mark DeMarco and their team entered the North Tower, Tower One. We ended up at Stairwell C, and we started our climb up. We're running into other people. I said, just follow the wall down. When you get outside, I said, try not to panic. I said, but run. Get away from the side as fast as you can. And all of a sudden, the lights went out, the building went dark, the ceiling panels were falling down. It sounded like a freight train uh, going by. And the whole place was shaking like an earthquake. With this, our radio started getting very active. About 15 floors down from the top, it looks like it's totally glowing red. On the inside, it's inevitable because I don't think this has too much longer to go. At 9.59 a.m., the 110-story South Tower, Tower 2, crashed down in just 10 seconds. And that's when a little bit of shock started setting in, because we knew what these buildings looked like. We knew how, how long they were, it took them to put them up. And if I had something like that to come down in, in a matter of seconds, it was, it was just mind-boggling. You, you, you couldn't wrap your head around it. One of the officers that was outside, he put over the radio, he said, everybody who was in Tower 1, evacuate it immediately. Get, get the hell out of there. DeMarco and Viore, along with Sergeant Michael Curtin and Officer John DeLara, saved civilians from certain death, ushering them from the stairway and lobby. The men then made their way from the North Tower to the adjacent building number six. There, they met McNally and his partner, Claude Danny Richards. Then, only moments later... One plane colliding with one twin tower. Oh, my God. It's And we put our heads down, and we held on to each other, and we tried to become as small as we possibly could. The 110-story North Tower landed on Building 6, blasting a crater through it, only a few feet from where McNally, Fiore, and DeMarco were huddled. You've probably seen the large cloud dust. Well, we were in it. I had a respirator, and that became very clogged very quickly, and I couldn't breathe. And you start really panicking when you can't breathe. All of a sudden, it was silent. And you're like, wow, I survived. I started moving my fingers and my toes. And I said, oh, I said, I guess that's a good sign. I think I got my limbs. And I figured I was alive. I don't know how long we were, we were there or how long we were in that spot. But we ended up getting up. And we all met up. We were able to climb out the windows out to the outside mezzanine level, which was facing West Street. The bridge was all collapsed. Everything was dead silent. No cars, no birds, nothing. McNally, Biori, and DeMarco searched in vain for three NYPD officers who, moments before, had been right there with them, a search that would continue for months on end. They couldn't find... Mike Curtin, 
John Valera or Danny Richards. And we didn't find them until the following spring. They were buried under the sheer weight of the World Trade Center. And they, they couldn't have been more than 20 feet behind us when, uh, when the tower came down. And that was, that was the focus of the rest of my days there, was making sure that people knew exactly where I thought these guys were, you know, so that we could recover their bodies. And to this day, I still, I, I don't understand why, why I'm still here. Uh, there's a guiltiness about it. Because uh, there's a lot of them that were uh, more talented. Uh, they're just better people than me. Uh, they, they didn't make it. I was able to come home. I was able to see my family. I was able to see my kids grow up. And a lot of them didn't. Before we go, we want to honor the memory of Gerard Coppola, known as Rod, a WNET engineer who was killed at the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Rod was at work that morning, managing and maintaining the station's first digital transmitter on top of Tower One. Rod Coppola was 46 years old. That's all for this special 9-11 edition of PBS NewsHour Weekend. For the latest news updates, visit pbs.org newshour. I'm Ari Srinivasan. Thanks for watching. Stay healthy and have a good night.
Good evening, everyone. The gleaming buildings that have risen here at the World Trade Center site have erased the physical scars of destruction from two decades ago. But today, on this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, we confronted the depths of the unhealed wounds to our hearts. Unspeakable loss, moments that will never be, and wounds to our collective sense of safety and security. Today at the crash sites, here at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania, families, survivors, and presidents celebrated the lives of victims and those who answered the call to duty. Today, a nation remembers 2,977 lives lost. The sky as blue as it was 20 years ago when terror rained down. Early this morning, the first flag unfurled at the Pentagon. In New York City, the largest commemoration at the 9-11 Memorial, 2,753 people lost. President Biden, the First Lady, Presidents Obama and Clinton looked on during the first moment of silence at 8.46 a.m. Commemorating the moment American Airlines Flight 11 struck the North Tower. My daughter Sarah Elizabeth Lowe was a flight attendant on that plane. Names of those we lost read by their loved ones. Until we meet again, my love, rest in peace. At 9.03, a second moment of silence at the time United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower. In Washington, D.C., at the Pentagon, another moment of silence at 9.37, when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed there, killing 184 people. And at 9.59, another somber pause at the moment when the South Tower collapsed. First responders like NYPD Chief Terry Tobin injured by falling rubble, while so many other rescuers lost their lives that day. And the days and years that follow. Being here today watching the memorial, 20th anniversary, does it still feel fresh? This day feels fresh because since 9-11, uh, where we lost 23 officers in the NYPD, we have lost an additional 269, which was as of December of 2020. Related? To because they died because of 9-11 related illnesses. And silence in Shanksville at 10.03. The family members of the 40 who died on Flight 93. Vice President Harris and former President Bush there to honor the heroes who prevented the plane from reaching Washington. The final moment of silence at 10.28, the moment the North Tower fell. Late today, President Biden's last stop laying a wreath at the Pentagon after visiting all three sites. These memorials are really important. President Trump making a surprise visit to the FDNY and NYPD. In Chicago, a flag raised. At West Point, Army takes the field with flags raised. And at Windsor Castle, guards playing the American National Anthem, just as they did 20 years ago. The world coming together to never forget. For 20 straight years now, America has set aside this day to remember those who died on 9-11. But for their families, there is no day without painful reminders. For Hannah Ellis tonight on how they are still dealing with their loss. It's a somber day. Filled with powerful emotion. And reflections on lives lost. 
Coming here is a sacred tradition, starting when Ground Zero was a massive hole, then when it was a construction site, and finally now, as a powerful monument. I don't know where else I would be. Julie Sweeney's husband, Brian, was on board United Airlines Flight 175. He left a message on their answering machine moments before the plane crashed into the South Tower. brings the McGinley brothers to ground zero every year. Daniel was an equity trader on the 89th floor of the South Tower. 20 years ago, he also made a final call to his family. He was crying for the people next door, and then minutes later, he was in the same situation. His youngest was only a year old when he died. Their birthdays and weddings and, and maybe christening. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always tough. Everybody who's uh, there down there today, you know, wearing a ribbon is going through the same thing. So I think that's one of the things I learned through this whole thing is that, um, you know, no one's, no one's immune. Gordon Hoy lost his sister that day, too. A doctor, he ran to the building as a first responder and barely escaped as the building collapsed. 20 years later, I can still hear it, smell it, taste it and see it as if it just happened yesterday. It's nothing that I will ever forget. These families tell me today is all about a nation pausing and honoring a vow to remember, and Lester say it's a tradition. They plan to continue forever. My goodness, we have all felt their pain today. Rahima, thanks very much. We're now in the ceremony in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, celebrating the heroes of Flight 93. Former President George W. Bush spoke there, praising the passengers and crew for their actions then, and warning of a new threat now. Tom Yamas is there. In this open field, my mother and flight attendant, Cece Ross Lyles. The names of heroes echoing. Those of the passengers and crew who died defending United Flight 93. Edward Porter Felt. 41-year-old Edward Felt was one of them. His younger brother, Gordon, telling me what this day and memorial mean. What do you hope people remember and learn 20 years later? I want people, when they come here, to understand that. And when they leave, to ask themselves, if it was me, could I have done what they did? United 93, understand you're ready for the taxi. The flight taking off from Newark, destined for San Francisco, when hijackers took over. <laughs> terrorists rerouting the plane determined to bring it down likely in our nation's capital but the brave souls on board storming the cockpit sacrificing their own lives when united 93 crashed here near shanksville today their courage highlighted by former president george w bush these americans were brave strong and united in ways that shocked the terrorists which should not surprise any of us but he warned that sort of unity is slipping away so much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. Though today, any politics pushed aside 
President and Mrs. Biden walking side by side with the loved ones of those who perished that day. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. Tom, I know it's been quite a journey for these families, but now they have a permanent memorial to come and remember. That's right, Lester. As you know, on 9-11, there was nothing out here. Now they have this national park, this incredible museum, and sites like this. This is called the Flight Path Overlook, and they want visitors to come out here, walk all the way to the end, and remember all those lives lost, and, of course, never forget the courage. Lester? All right, Tom Yamas, thank you. Three days after the 9-11 attacks, President Bush stood on the rubble at Ground Zero and picked up a bullhorn. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of it soon. Before long, the U.S. ended up in Afghanistan. For the next 20 years, this is the first anniversary where there are no American troops in that country. But we have new reporting tonight about a recent U.S. drone strike that may have killed Afghan civilians. Richard Engel reports from the region. For most Americans, 9-11 seemed to come out of nowhere. From a man they'd never heard of, hiding out in one of the most inaccessible countries on the planet. But just days after the attacks, the CIA and Special Forces organized a counter-strike. Bin Laden, he's finally done it. Former CIA operative Gary Schroen led the first team in. It was very clear. We're going in. We're going to uh, find bin Laden and kill him. The Taliban, who'd taken control of Afghanistan in a civil war, were protecting bin Laden. So the United States took action. It does now appear that United States military action against targets in Afghanistan, that that action is underway. Just three months after 9-11, the United States overthrew the Taliban and had al-Qaeda on the run. But bin Laden got away. Soon, the United States launched a second war, this time in Iraq. The Taliban regrouped. President Obama surged in thousands of reinforcements. And eventually, the Taliban were beaten back, allowing Afghans to be free, dare to dream, and girls to go to school. But the Taliban never went away. And when, in August, President Biden pulled out, the Taliban recaptured Afghanistan in 11 days, so quickly, American troops hadn't even finished leaving. And Afghans were desperate not to be left behind. With broad international support, the U.S. led one of the biggest airlifts in history. But it was an evacuation under fire. A suicide bomber attacked the airport, killing 13 American service members and 200 Afghans trying to escape the country. Fearing more attacks, the U.S. targeted a vehicle in Kabul. A detailed reconstruction by the New York Times shows the target was likely not a terrorist, as the Pentagon claimed, but a man with water jugs in his car. It was a tragic final act in a war that took the United States three months to win and 20 years to lose. And now the Taliban are stronger and better armed than they were on 9-11. Lester? All right, Richard Engel, thank you. We'll be back with the story of the high school students who survived the attacks and now are inspired to serve. Plus, the new pushback against the president's vaccine mandates.
are back with a new warning for parents who may be trying to get their younger children vaccinated. It comes as many businesses say they won't follow the president's new vaccine mandates. Morgan Chesky has the latest. Tonight, a new warning from the FDA, the agency urging parents not to give children under 12 the COVID vaccine as families worry about sending kids back into the classroom. You're really going to have to show that they're incredibly safe and that they're effective. Child cases of COVID-19 made up more than a quarter of the 939,000 cases nationwide during the last week of August. While death or serious illness is rare in kids, the FDA stressing vaccines for kids under 12 could be available in the coming months, adding children are not small adults. Whether there is a need for different doses or different strength formulations of vaccines already used for adults, we are eager to see our children and grandchildren vaccinated. Vaccines, the focus of President Biden's new plan, mandating businesses with more than 100 employees require the shots or offer weekly testing. Six is bid. At Heritage Auction in Dallas, the president's words, a reassurance. Owners say their staff is already 88% vaccinated. He got more than 600 employees. Any pushback so far? We haven't received any pushback so far. Individual beliefs have a place. Individual freedom has a place. And we're willing to accommodate that. But part of that comes with the testing mandate and the weekly testing. And we're happy to sort of fill our role as an employer. But not all companies agree, setting the stage for challenges in court. I think this mandate um, will be effective from a practical standpoint in getting more vaccinations. Okay into the workplace. From a legal and political standpoint, I think uh, as long as this is on the front pages, it's going to create a quagmire. Morgan, joining me now from Dallas, Texas, the governor there pushing back against the new mandates. What can you tell us? Yeah, the governor is saying that he's an open critic against all mask or vaccine mandates. And Lester, he's now calling this latest plan an assault on private businesses. Lester? All right, Morgan, thanks. We're back in a moment with students who survived 9-11, now out to make the world better. And later, what became of the unity we felt 20 years ago? The attack on the World Trade Center forced students in a nearby high school to run for their lives. Later, when the smoke finally cleared, many of them heard something they never expected, a calling to a life of service. Here's Joe Fryer. Students at Stuyvesant High School were just starting their day. It was just like, boom. The world changed right outside their classroom window. You could see this, like, towering dust cloud moving towards you. Lila Nordstrom was a senior, Madeline Martinez a sophomore. Two of the more than 3,000 students suddenly forced to flee. Uh, I think at that point I started to panic a little bit. We were crying in the hallway. Oh, I was definitely crying. What stands out to you still about that day? Sort of felt like an earthquake. I turned around and there was just a sort of movie style, it looked like special effects, fireball on the top of the World Trade Center. That moment where like, things are suspended in time, you're just trying to figure out what is happening, like what does this mean? They were forever scarred by that day and shaped by it. In the years that followed, Nordstrom became an advocate, fighting for students who got sick because they returned to the school just a few blocks north of Ground Zero within a month of 9-11. Ground Zero was still on fire and would be for another four months. She testified before Congress, created an advocacy group, 
recently wrote a book titled Some Kids Left Behind. I feel that I have an obligation to make sure that we don't repeat these mistakes in future disasters. The need for strong leadership has motivated Martinez, too. She's now earning a law degree with a focus on affordable housing, hoping to be the best civil servant she can. 20 years later, 9-11 is still shaping what you want to do with your life, right? I think youth is important in the federal government because I think that there's a generation of millennials who have lived through the recession, who have lived through 9-11, and sort of want a different brand of leadership. Their classmate, Juke Su, was already a leader on 9-11, their student body president. Across the building, you could see, like, the gaping hole in the World Trade Center, and everyone was just, you know, horrified at what had to happen. Later, he served in the military in Iraq, where he earned a bronze star, and now leads Pursuit, a nonprofit that teaches tech skills to those in underserved communities, a life punctuated by service. These kinds of experiences affected me and others in a very deep way. If I can contribute to, to you know, my community and in our society, it's, it's very gratifying. Lifelong lessons still stretching far beyond the solemn walls of their beloved school. Joe Fryer, NBC News, New York. When we come back, some final thoughts on how 9-11 brought Americans together. Finally, on this 9-11 anniversary, a difficult look into the mirror at America then and now. There is no nostalgia for that horrible day, no silver linings. It was and always will be evil on an incalculable scale, full stop. But as we mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, how can we not go there, talk about the elephant in the room? How we responded back then, one country pulling together, united in our grief and our resolve, versus how we respond two decades later as our country faces a different peril, the pandemic. 20 years ago, Americans collected and handed out masks to ground zero workers. Today, fight over whether to protect our children from a deadly disease with them. Americans lined up to give blood in the days after September 11. Today, millions of us refuse a vaccine proven to protect us and our fellow Americans. God bless America. On the evening of 9-11, political differences were drowned out under a musical chorus of patriotism. Hard to imagine, almost 20 years later, on the same Capitol steps where members of Congress sang, it would not be Al-Qaeda, but fellow Americans attacking our democratic process. In 2001, new security rules and procedures to make us safer were met with patience. We knew what had to be done. The rules to make us safer today too often result in rage. We can take heart that in both instances, we came to recognize the angels among us, the heroes who traveled to hell and back to save others. These are different times. No war, no terror attack has killed as many Americans as the pandemic. Today, as we remember what happened on September 11, it's worth also asking what has happened to us. That's NBC Nightly News for this September 11th. Thank you for watching. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night.